0: She got on the stand and it was awful, and and I remember because I, I was I was the one assigned to do the uh, cross examination, and Robin turned to me and said, "Destroy her," <laughs> <laughs> because she was so bad. She was so cold, uncaring, and and it worked.
1: Hello and welcome to see you in court the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court.
2: Welcome friends and lovers of the law. Today we have with us John D. Haddon, Georgia lawyer. We are going to be talking about premises liability with uh, John and his latest win in the Georgia Court of Appeals in a premises liability topic and exactly what is a premises, premises liability case. Uh, but first let me tell you a little bit about John. John D. Haddon is the owner and founder of the Haddon Law Firm. An experienced trial and appellate lawyer, he is the author of three respected treatises on Georgia litigation practice. Green's Georgia Law of Evidence, Georgia Law of Torts, Trial Preparation and Practice, and Georgia Magistrate Court Handbook, all published by Thomson Reuters Westlaw. He is also author of the evidence chapter in the multi-volume national Thomson Reuters treatise, Handling Motor Vehicle Accident Cases, Second Edition. John is the president of Atlanta Trial Lawyers Association, a member of the Atlanta Bar Association, where he is chair-elect of the litigation section, uh, and a champion member of the Georgia Trial Lawyers Association, where he is chairman of the Amicus Curie Committee. We're, we may talk about that a little bit too, John. Uh, he assists attorneys from around the state matters before appellate courts on our GTLA Amicus Curia Committee. He also serves on the Board of Governors of the American Association for Justice New Lawyers Division and is past chair of the litigation committee of the State Bar of Georgia Young Lawyers Division. John graduated with honors from the University of Georgia School of Law in Athens where he was a member of the Georgia Law Review. While in law school, John served as a clerk for the judges of the State Court of Cherokee County and worked in the office of the District Attorney for Rockdale County prosecuting felony and misdemeanor criminal cases. John earned his bachelor's degree from Emory University. And in his free time, John is an avid private pilot and a scuba diver. Interesting fun fact. John, welcome to the show.
0: I kind of like bowling, too. (laughs) And drones, too, I think. And drones, yeah.
2: So that may go with piloting.
0: Once this call is over, I'm probably going to go take my drone out over the lake.
2: Well, welcome, and we're glad you're here. First of all, let's uh, talk to us a little bit about your career before we get into your most recent win in the Court of Appeals on a Premises case. We're gonna go into a little bit of your background. why did you go to law school? And tell us a little bit about that.
3: Well,
0: I, you know, I, I, why did I go to law school? That's a loaded question. Um, you know, during college, um, at one point, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, and then I realized I was not really good at math and all that stuff. Um, my wife is was a neuroscience major in college, and she's very good at all that. She decided not to go to law school uh, to uh, med school either, but um, I decided that my uh, skills were better utilized, uh, you know, in the, the rhetorical and, and logical field. Uh, as opposed to doing, doing science. Um, so I think around junior year, I decided, yeah, maybe I'll go to law school. And I took the LSAT and did fairly well. And, uh, the rest, the rest is
2: history as they say.
0: Yeah. Said. My, my stepdad's a lawyer and, you know, he was always encouraging me to do that. And so I said, yeah, let's, let's see what I can do. And so I got into Georgia, I got into Emory and, uh, did not go to Emory.
3: <laughs> sorry, Robin. So John, this is, th- th- this is Lester Tate. Uh, Rob, Robin left me out today. So, uh, I'm, I'm just going to Sorry, it, That's okay. I, I, no I was reading from the script. I know, and and I know, my co-host I
2: know. Lester Tate. Is, and, that's
3: also uh, uh, so do, do you, do you only do appeals now? And I, I'll tell you what intrigues me. You know, I kind of hung a shingle when I was about 31 and, you know, been, uh, been doing this, uh, longer than I was old, uh, you know, uh, it it seems uh, at this point, and so I'm I'm seeing a lot more younger lawyers that are like trying to specialize in one little area of the law, and you know, when I started out, I might be trying a divorce case on Tuesday, and uh, a personal injury case on, on Friday, and a criminal case on Monday, and that kind of thing. No,
0: I, I do not only do appeals. I, I love trying cases. Um, I mean, I've, I've tried a case with Robin, which we, we might talk about later, but I, I literally love picking a jury and arguing to the jury and, and all of that. But I would say about probably 40 to 50% of my caseload now is appeals.
3: That's great. And so, um, uh, which do you think you like better?
0: I mean, I like them both. It's hard to say. Um, you know, it. I won't say appeals are easier because they can be a lot more stressful. You know, when I'm having to. But you,
3: but you don't have to worry about your witness showing up, you right, know, right? And, and you it, don't it, have to. You don't have to worry about uh, 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 knowing what the jury's thinking because you've got some idea. Uh, at least what the constraints are with uh, with with a panel of judges, you know that they, you know what cases they're looking at and that kind of thing.
0: Well, I will say appeals are much less stressful from the standpoint of nobody's going to second guess me, like nobody's going to say, "Oh, you should have called this witness," or, you know, you should have put in this piece of evidence. I mean, it's hard to commit malpractice <laughs> on an appeal because the record is the record and uh, you know, we, we argue it the best we can, but still, I, I really do like arguing cases, um, you know, try, trying cases. Um, there's, there's nothing quite like being in front of the jury, picking the jury and then being in front of the jury and presenting the case for your client. And I love that. And
3: I I think as you go along too, I mean, you know, like a a lot of folks, we had Mike Terry on, you know, and Mike's, Doing almost all you know appeals now, and I, I do almost all trials. But uh, you know, uh, I've, I've still argued about thirty cases in the Court of Appeals, you know, or, or Supreme Court or the Eleventh Circuit. And uh, so you, you know, you kind of go back and forth. You pr- and I, I think it's probably a good thing.
0: Yeah, and, and and that that brings up a good point. I mean, I'm not the most experienced lawyer out there. I mean, I've been practicing for what 15, 16 years. Um, but Mike, Mike Terry, as you mentioned, uh, he and I have talked all the time on the phone. Like we have questions for each other and we're asking each other for advice. So even fairly experienced lawyers are always asking other people for advice. Like when I call Mike or Mike calls me. And, you know, I mean, I can name a lot of other attorneys who I call and, and we call each other back and forth. Uh, Charlie Court, for example, is, is outstanding appellate attorney. And we talk on the phone all the time when we've got, you know, we're trying to bat back and forth uh, various appellate issues. Uh,
2: well John, um, one thing I looked up was, uh, and I don't remember the number now I didn't write it down, but how many times do you think you've appeared in a, an appellate court?
0: I think it's probably somewhere around 70 or 80 times. Okay.
2: All right. And um, if the other 50% of your practice is all personal injury, is that right?
0: For the most part, I, I occasionally handle a, um, you know, a one-off case on something else. I, I got a good result recently from the Court of Appeals in a uh, probate case. Um, uh, th- there was a interesting case. Um, my co-counsel who hired me to handle the case was actually the father of my uh, opposing counsel in another case, the Ritchie case, uh, Glenn Moffett, Matt Moffett. Um, so I, you know, what I really like about Georgia practice is everybody's really friendly. You know, I'm, I'm, rep- I'm, I'm helping out uh, Glenn Moffett uh, in a in a big
3: appeal, and I'm opposing fun Matt Moffat, in another big appeal. Matt Matt's another one who's been a uh, guest on our uh, on our. Uh... Yeah. Our, our, our nascent uh, podcast adventure yeah. here so and and, and I, I i just love that
0: because you know and, and i even talked to i talked with matt and i'm like you know i'm helping your dad out on this appeal and he says oh that's awesome hope hope you win that one hope you lose <laughs> ours
3: <laughs> so so uh so with uh with the richie case i want to uh, I, I i just want to lay a little groundwork uh, because robin's more familiar with the case, but. You know one of the one of the things with premises liability, <clears throat> and you know this, I, I certainly know it practicing law in a small town. You know somebody comes in and they say, uh, "I fell down at the Acme Grocery Store," and uh, I don't think the lay public really understands what uh, I think there are a lot of folks that think if you fall on somebody else's premises, you know, like if I, if I go over to visit it, uh, with Robin and Bill Clark at their house and I fall, it's somehow Robin and Bill Clark's fault, regardless. And uh, when you go to law school, uh, they try to teach you differently. And then when you get out and start practicing and you represent some of those folks, you really learn the hard way uh, that, it, that the, the establishing the liability on the part of the landowner or the land occupier it's just not the same. So can you tell our folks just a little bit about uh, what you have to prove in order to recover from an insurance company that's insured somebody's property or premises?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, premises cases, you know, there's there's sort of, I don't know if it came from Seinfeld or, or what, but there's this sort of sense that premises cases are really easy. That is the exact opposite of the reality in Georgia. Um it is very, very, very hard to win a premises case in Georgia. Um, there, there's the, the two-prong test. You have to show that the um, uh, premises owner had knowledge of the hazardous condition, and you have to show that the victim uh, did not have knowledge of it. And that doesn't necessarily seem so hard in in Principle, but it's really hard. Um, I mean, just looking at a you know slip and fall at a Kroger or Walmart or Target or wherever. I mean, you've got to be able to show that the uh, you know hazardous condition. Maybe somebody spilled some water or whatever. You've got to be able to show that that was there for a certain period of time, long enough that uh, the that Target or whoever would have known about it, and that. The victim did not know about it, um, and as the decisions have come out, it's, it they've really raised the bar on that. It's pretty tough to prove, um, you know. Uh, well,
3: well, would you would you agree? Would you agree uh, that um, th- there there was a time, uh, that maybe when I was closer to your age, when uh, when premises liability was such in Georgia that it had almost become sort of a word game. Between the defense lawyer and your client. And they'd come take your client, that would say, take their deposition, they'd have them under oath and say, Well, what would you fall in? You know, well, I fell in water. Well, did you see, did, could you see the water on the floor? Just sort of not, could you see the water before you fell or did you see the right. water after you fell or when did you, you know, when did you see the water? But did you see that water on the floor? Yeah, I saw that water on the floor. And then the next thing you know, you've got a motion for summary judgment and you're about to get kicked out of court because you swore under oath that you fell in the water, uh, you know, sort of, uh, sort of broadly, even though you didn't see the water before, before you fell.
0: Yeah. I I mean, the, the cases are kind of all over the map on this. You know, there are cases, um, where the trial court has thrown out a case because the, uh, plaintiff could not say what he or she fell on. Like the plaintiff would, would say, oh, I slipped on something. It was some wet substance, but I don't know if it was water or oil or vinegar or whatever. And the, the trial courts have thrown that out. Um, thankfully, the court of appeals generally has reversed those and said, you just have to show that there's some foreign substance on the on the ground, not that it was a specific, you know, you don't have to. Describe the molecular structure of whatever you've flipped on. The, the, other,
2: the other thing about those cases is that the, it's kind of like a, a sliding scale. So the more you prove that the Kroger owner or you know, the, the, the premises owner knows that there's this bad condition on their floor, the more evidence you have of that and that it was so obvious to them, why didn't they fix it? the worse you're making it for your own case because if it's so obvious they should have fixed it would have been obvious to your client as well.
0: And Robin, you've got a, you've got a case with, um, Kroger right now, right? With, um, some leaking something or other.
2: Uh, just, just wrap that one up. That was in district court. and We, we resolved that. Thank goodness. Yeah. A difficult case. Um, but yeah. And in that case, for example, it was, uh, uh, we alleged she slipped, my client slipped on a piece of cellophane or that, that bubble wrap that they wrap drinks, wrap around drinks. We had video. We had hundreds of hours of video. Uh, but we had video of about an hour before her fall of a man, a bender, taking off that bubble wrap, and it was everywhere. Then she comes along and slips on it. And then the, the Kroger manager put that bubble wrap cellophane in her pocket. <laughs> so we had a spoliation motion, which I don't think I don't know if we want to get into that, but um, no.
0: if you want to, so you can. But, but we, you we, kind of,
2: we tried. that I, I I focus on that part of the case, the the covering up of evidence, rather than the actual defect in the premises.
0: But. <laughs> So, oh, I'm sorry.
3: I'm sure. Yeah, I was just gonna say so uh, premises stuff is also pretty broad. I mean, one of the biggest cases I ever had was a was a was a premises liability case that involved a shooting. And so things with shootings and crimes and things like that are, are, are frequently uh, part of premises liability. And uh, so maybe you could sort of articulate for our listeners. Uh, because to me, it's sort of the it, it's sort of the opposite in the common mind. There are a lot of people that think just because you slip and fall in somebody else's place, the the owners and occupiers occupiers are liable. And then there's a, a similar popular review uh, popular view that's equally wrong. That well, if some wrongdoer attacks you on somebody else's premises, uh, where the owner is responsible for the security and 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 uh, what not of the, of the place that it's the wrongdoer's fault. And the owner has no responsibility whatsoever.
0: Yeah. Well that, that, that's actually a a good segue into what I was just about to say, which is that, um, you know, the, the slip and fall type premises case, um, even though it may seem a universe away from, uh, negligent security shooting case there, it's the same law that applies. Um, You know, knowledge of the dangerous condition and lack of knowledge on the part of the planet. So in my Richie case uh, that I worked on with Pete Law and Mike Moran and uh, 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 Denise over there, um, our client was doing some work. He was a subcontractor for Kroger and was cleaning up the uh, backside of the property, the Beltline. And he saw somebody or actually he didn't necessarily see it, but his coworker saw somebody breaking into his truck, both of their trucks actually. And the coworker said, Hey, somebody's getting into our trucks. So they ran to the trucks and, um, my guy goes up to his own truck and tries to open the door and he gets shot and killed. Um, And that's sort of, you know, it's kind of the same thing as any other uh, premises case. There was a dangerous condition. I mean, um, this was at the uh, Kroger on Ponce, which is sort of known as being a um, dangerous place. There's a may nickname. or may not be a nickname for that Kroger, as <laughs> I recall. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to mention the nickname, but I told Robin she could. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, he did not, the, the, the second prong of that test was the big problem in our case, which was because, you know, our guy saw somebody in his truck and ran toward the truck. So did he assume the risk, um, Kroger's own representative said, we don't think he did anything wrong. We would have done the same thing. Um, the co-worker said, yeah, I ran toward it. Uh, you know, we saw somebody hanging out on our trucks. And so we uh, ran and to see what was going on. Um, but Kroger's official legal position was, oh, he assumed the risk because, you know, he, he saw that there was a criminal in his truck and uh, ran toward it. And we said, look, that's totally reasonable. You, you don't assume the risk that you're going to get murdered just because somebody's in your truck. You, you know, any reasonable person would run up to your truck and See what's going on.
2: You know, I tried when I was reading the case, I tried to put myself in your client's shoes, which is always good exercise. Um, and I tried to think, what would I do? Would I have run? I mean, it, the case doesn't say that he ever saw this man armed or, or he just thought i got. get I don't know what he thought, but he didn't show a gun. Correct. So I was trying to think, would I run to my car? I don't know. I'm, I don't know what I would do. But I can, understand, yeah, I, mean, I, I can understand it, what he did.
0: I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't know what I would have done personally, but honestly, if I saw somebody in my car, yeah, I frankly probably would have run the car.
2: Yeah, I can definitely understand it. So the burden of proof for a plaintiff is the same in a in a, a premises case involving a shooting, like in the Ritchie case, as it is in a slip and fall Kroger on a piece of cellophane. Right. Is
0: that right? Yep.
2: Tell us and a little you know,
0: And I was going to say, you know, I give a lot of credit to the um, trial judge in in the Ritchie case, Judge Taylor, who um, at the oral argument, he said, this is a really close question. Um, He said, I was not involved at at the trial stage. I just got brought in for the appeal, but he told Pete, he said, Pete, I think you need to appeal this because I think the Court of Appeals needs to figure this out.
2: So that means at the trial stage, Judge Taylor granted Kroger's motion for summary judgment. Is that right? right? Case case over, and you have to appeal to the Georgia Court of Appeals. Correct. Just to kind of explain it for our listeners. And uh, now we know that the Court of Appeals ruled in your client's favor, and what's going on now? Is somebody going to apply for cert or, to, you know?
0: You know. uh, no, no. We're just waiting for the uh, remediature right now where the uh, Court of Appeals sends the case back down to the uh, trial court. Um, Kroger, neither Kroger nor the um, security company that was the other defendant has uh, sought reconsideration, nor have they filed for uh, CERT. So so you'll,
2: uh, Pete and Mike will be trying this case at some point whenever we start back jury trials i guess who, right whenever that is
0: yeah um, and, I've, and i've called matt just to talk to him about it and um they just they uh, they just don't seem to be uh, um, interested let me the ask program. you about
2: that kind of the, the, the richie case how do you go about proving um that this place uh had a lot of prior crime and that kroger was on notice of, of problems
0: Well, the the nice thing in the the Richie case is that they essentially admitted that. Um, I mean, this was, again, there's a a certain nickname for that particular uh, property, Um, but in a typical case, and I've handled a number of premises cases, uh, negative security cases, generally what what we do is we will um, get the matrix of the neighborhood that will show all the crimes for, you know, the past three years or, you know, some certain period of time. And usually we'll have an expert talking about, um, how, how prevalent crime is in the area. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have experts generally to uh, testify to that. Um, although I had a case a while back where, um, we did not have an ex. We, we, well, we did have an expert, but we didn't have him testify. But we just put in his affidavit um, that showed the matrix of the neighborhood, that showed that crime was just pervasive in the neighborhood.
2: You don't have to call to be able to prove prior crimes. You don't have to call the, the prior victims and have a parade of witnesses come in and testify. I was also shot at the Kroger or something like that
0: well i mean it depends on, i mean it depends on the procedural posture if if you're on summary judgment, I think you we can make it through with uh just affidavits um and in 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 the Ritchie case, they didn't really dispute that they knew that this particular Kroger was you know had a lot of crime um, One of my uh earlier cases, which unfortunately we lost um, involved underground and they didn't really argue, you know, that they didn't have knowledge either. I mean, they more or less acknowledged that, um, crime was pervasive at underground Atlanta. And we had all the evidence. We had the matrix showing the whole neighborhood and all the crimes that had been committed. Um, we lost for a different reason, but, um, uh, Yeah. I I mean, I think that ideally, you know, in a perfect world, you might want to have a witness to testify, but you know, when you're on summary judgment, um, you can work them off of affidavits.
2: The Ritchie opinion, um, which was authored by presiding judge Miller also goes into the right for any reason, I guess, I guess defense attorneys argued, um, hey, give us a break. We may not have used the right arguments, but the result was right. And we have an old um, an old doctrine in Georgia law called, right for any reason. Meaning that if the result, right result was reached, even though we argued it differently in the court below, the court should just affirm. Can you talk a little bit about that? And
0: my, yeah, question, I- my,
2: my question to you is, sh- should we get rid of that right for any reason?
0: And and, and and Robin and I have talked about this um, over the past few years, and, and I mean, I understand the rationale for the that rule because, it, I mean, it's a judicial economy rule. You know, if, if the trial court was right, but they just got the reasoning wrong, then, you know, why should we send it back down and just let the trial court waste their time reissuing a decision based on what the court of appeal says? Um, this all comes back sort of to preserving error, um, but it's kind of the opposite because you, you know, the defendant or the appellant always has to preserve error, and make the right arguments at the court of appeals, and this is sort of the opposite of that. Saying, well, if the if the the appellee did not raise these arguments, it doesn't matter if they didn't raise the right arguments. I will say, and I do not like this rule. Um, I don't either. I will say that I have seen in the past couple of years, I think the Court of Appeals has been kind of cutting back on this.
3: Um, Let me me push back on that for just a minute because, you know, and one, one of the things for our listeners, you know, one of the things that. Uh, that we have, uh, uh, you know, a summary judgments where the case gets kicked out without having a trial because the court says there's not any as to the facts and the law favors one side or the other just as a matter of law. And on those, uh, John, typically uh, they, uh, the standard of review that a court looks at, uh, an appellate court looks at what the trial court did can be Anything and a lot of different cases. Some some things it may be abuse of discretion, but uh, for summary judgment, the uh, standard of review is de novo review, and so you're going into the appellate court really with a clean slate. And by de novo review, you don't have to uh, you, you don't have to necessarily show an error below you just get a re-argument of the thing with whatever was in the record below. And so is, is the right for any reason rule also sort of rooted in that, that notion that, uh, well, you got de novo review. So if you got de novo review, even if there are other reasons, you can bring them to us because we're starting from ground zero. We're not just looking at, the, at, at, at that opinion like we might do on uh, something that excludes evidence or whatever where the standard review is abusive of discretion the
0: the problem that i have is you know i get brought into a lot of appeals um after it's been argued at the trial court and the trial lawyers have not necessarily argued what they should have and so i'm stuck with what i've got to argue so you have to you know if, if we're stuck with with what the anything they want to that's the problem i've got
2: yeah it seems to me it contravenes um all of our rules about following the record it's got to be in the record or, or it, it, we can't hear it it kind of is a sandbag track uh trick by the defense that they can raise something on appeal for the first time because we haven't even talked about it
0: right um, yeah and, I, and and again I, I will say that i think that based on some Recent decisions I've read, I think the Court of Appeals is sort of backing away from uh, affirming cases based under that rule. They're they they tend to be um, vacating decisions for further consideration. All right. Uh,
2: since we're talking about premises liability and and your your win and Richie. Um, there was another case that just recently came out in March of this year, right when our coronavirus was starting, Star Residential versus Hernandez. Um, and in that case, another another shooting uh, at, a, at an apartment complex, I believe. But I wanted to talk a little bit about it because it was the Court of Appeals addressing whether the Street Gang Terrorism and Prevention Act could be applied to a premises owner in a civil premises liability case. And the court of appeals held, yes, it can be. So is that gonna be something uh, that premises liability plaintiffs' attorneys are gonna be asserting more often in, in crime cases?
0: I, I think they will, I, I think they and we will be. <laughs> um, I will say I have some reservations about that personally. Um and there there was and I can't remember the name of the case but there um, has been some uh, authority that has questioned whether you know associate that that law is constitutional in, in other contexts um, you know it, it, it does trouble me a little bit as a plaintiff's lawyer um, trying to associate uh, or, or try to bring in other, you know, general association, I mean, it's basically character evidence. And um, under Rule uh, 404B, generally that doesn't come in, but the way that the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals have, have ruled on that, they generally do allow in that sort of evidence. Um, and as, as a plaintiff's lawyer, or if I were still a prosecutor, that would be great, but it does bother me a little bit that you're basically bringing in character evidence.
2: Yeah. Well, the Court of Appeals seemed to, they, they went really, it was a, a I guess, to look at the text of the statute and when they read the exact wording of the statute, they concluded, well yeah, it does apply to that. This is apparently what the legislature meant that a um, you know private individual who's injured in a premises, if they can show that it's harboring gang activity knew about gang activity uh yeah they can bring a cause of action have travel damages which when you think about it from the legislator's standpoint legislature's standpoint uh bringing that kind of civil liability action would encourage premises owners to kick kick off their premises gang gang members so i mean it 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 has a good policy behind it
0: no i Um, i mean i you know it's it's going to be Helpful for me in my cases. Um, I just have some sort of civil liberties issues
2: uh-huh. with it. Would it have applied in the Ritchie case?
0: Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, as far as we know, you know, these guys were operating independently. Okay. Um, and
2: then Uh, I know that you are on the Ritchie case. You're working with Pete Law and Mike Moran. Um, And then uh, in just a few days ago, there was an article about another case Pete has that um, was on a motion for a new trial that Mike Terry, one of our friends argued for Pete Mike on a premises liability case, a shooting case that uh, the client had been paralyzed a crime at a Krober, and it was a seventy million dollar verdict. And Judge Purdom in DeKalb State essentially upheld it, remitted it a little bit, but upheld the verdict. And I was wondering if you could comment on that.
0: Well, I I'm, I'm familiar with that case from the standpoint of we we were um, he had he, he had that case when we were working on the Rich case. I don't know the exact details, but it was a pretty similar case to the Ritchie case.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in, in that case, the, um, the victim survived but was obviously seriously injured. And I think that uh, Judge Perdham, uh entered a remitter based on something about um, future medical expenses, yeah. but he upheld almost all of it. Yeah. But it was but it was a similar situation. Um, in fact I think we may have had some of we may have reused some of that evidence in, in the Ritchie case mm-hmm. uh, as far as you know Kroger's knowledge of and, and I don't remember this exactly, but uh, Kroger's knowledge of uh, you know uh, crime generally in the Atlanta area.
1: Okay.
2: Um, you mentioned earlier a case that you and I tried together. It's been a long time, I know, but um, I wanted to mention that because that was an a interesting case, a declaratory judgment action that went to a jury trial. And And can you talk a little bit about what a declaratory judgment action is? Because um, not a lot of trial lawyers uh, who try cases all the time, not many trial lawyers have tried a deck action. Um, and I, I would- just... I just recently had a case. I just recently resolved a case where I had a wrongful death case in state court, but in federal court, the insurance company filed a deck action, and those lawyers kept telling me, "Oh, this is a motion. The the judge is going to decide this on a motion." And I kept saying, "No, she's not. <laughs> this is a jury question. We're going, to, you know, read my lips. We are going to be striking a jury and have a jury decide this issue." And they just couldn't quite understand that you could have a jury trial in a deck action. So. Tell us a little bit about
0: that. Yeah, like Robin, I I, uh, started my career as a defense lawyer, and we filed deck actions all the time. Um, But I don't – I may have tried one of them. I I can't – I really can't remember. But um, the case that Robin is talking about was um, a horrible situation. Um, uh, There was a a, a relatively young couple. They were in their early 40s. up in Gwinnett County and they were hit head on by a guy driving a 2001 Camaro, I think. And, um, both people in the Camaro were killed. The, the, the driver and the, um, passenger who was Robin's client's daughter. Um, and then my clients were the, uh, guy who was, or the parents of the guy who was killed in the other car and the passenger who survived. He was the only survivor out of the four. Um, Horrible, horrible case. Um, And I, you know, I I drove up to the yard and saw the vehicles and it was just really a terrible scene. Um, But we settled the case with the underlying uh, insurance, uh, I can't, I, and it was a decent State, amount of,
2: State Farm.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, and and they had decent insurance. It was like two fifty five hundred. I think.
2: Oh, State Farm was the excess, that's right.
0: Well, they were both.
2: Okay, both,
0: okay. They, they, I think they had two fifty five hundred two fifty 250 per person, 500 per rack, and they, they readily gave that money to us. Um, and I had sent a letter to, uh, to Tom Harper, good friend of mine, great guy, um, and said, "Hey Tom, um, you know we'll, we'll settle this, uh, but we need proof that this is the extent of the insurance." And I, he was like, "Oh yeah, yeah. Safe Farm tells me that's all there is." I remember very clearly. I was dropping the this was pre e filing days. I dropped the um, uh, releases in the mail, and when I got back up to my office, I had a voicemail from Tom Harper. Hey, John, um, you know, you had asked about an umbrella policy, and turns out (laughs) there was one. We don't think it applies, but I wanted to make you aware of it. So that's how Robin and I ended up trying a case together.
2: (laughs) And the the issue, as I remember it, was whether this young man who was at fault in causing the wreck was uh, a resident of yeah. his parents' home at the time of the wreck? Because if he was, there was a million dollars in coverage. If he wasn't, there was no more. Right. And and I I recall the verdict. The verdict forms was simply it, it was was this young man a resident? Yes or no?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that was that was really the whole question. They brought in um, so so it was Tom Harper. Then he quit working for state farm then um uh uh H- blair H- craig.
2: oh okay i was gonna say hilliard Castillo.
0: yeah blair craig took over and filed the motion for summary judgment which we won and then hilliard ended up trying it with us um and offline i can tell you some funny stories about hilliard and robin but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, <laughs> he's a yeah. great
2: he's a great trial lawyer
0: he's a great trial lawyer but man that was that was one of the some of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, you know, the, the whole thing came down to I, I will never forget this. And Robin, you may not remember this. You remember when we were planning for this trial, we had said, we've got to treat the mother with kid gloves.
2: I remember that. Yeah. Because
0: we thought that the jury was going to just find her very, very sympathetic and. We did not want to antagonize her and make the jury think that we were attacking the mother of the kid who was killed, who, the at-fault driver. Um, she got on the stand and it was awful. And, and I remember, because I, I, was, I was the one assigned to do the uh, cross-examination, and Robin turned to me and said, destroy her. <laughs> <laughs> because she was so bad she was so cold uncaring and and it worked because she was she was just i I will just never forget robin turning to me and i'm like robin what do i need to do you're like destroy her
3: (laughs) one of the great things about a courtroom is you you just never know exactly what's going to happen you know uh, uh in a courtroom you, um,
2: you, may,
3: you may have to change your strategy like, you, like you, that in an instant. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a, a, absolutely. Uh, may end up uh, might changing your strategy. I told somebody the other day that uh, uh, I was uh, once waiting for a jury, and uh, uh, I, I, I represented uh, – it was a land case. I represented a defendant, and somebody else represented a co-defendant. And uh, the jury was out and the co-defendant came over and uh uh started talking about this group that he sang with and there's nobody in the courtroom except us and the bailiffs, and suddenly he breaks into song and sings under the boardwalk for us. Uh there they're, they're in the courtroom that day. And I thought, you know, I've I've seen it all now.
0: Well my my, my absolute favorite closing argument ever was Robin's closing in that DJ case. Um Steve Thornton and I bought that transcript because we were like, Robin just knocked it out of the park.
2: <laughs> oh, you're sweet to say that. I do remember I sang, talking about singing, I sang in that, uh, I sang Papa was a rolling stone wherever he laid his hat yeah. was his home because we were saying this guy's home was <laughs> his parents' home. Yeah.
1: It was fun. And
2: I, it was a good, I, good I,
0: victory. I, I, should, I should give credit to Steve Thornton. Um, yes. Yeah, in that case, with who – I brought him into the case and he, like a week before um, the trial, uh, got Wells Fargo's um, corporate rep under subpoena and we deposed her and brought up that last check that showed this kid wrote, you know, five hours before the whole incident, wrote as his address, his parents' address. Um, which, which kind of cemented it for us.
2: Yes, great trial, and, and, and uh, as I recall, Judge Adams, we're in the capital period, great. I've tried a couple cases in front of him. He is an outstanding judge. He,
0: he, he's an interesting judge, but also an outstanding judge.
2: Yeah, Out, interesting and outstanding. Um, John, um, one last thing we wanted to ask you as we ask all of our guests, what is your notion of
0: justice or how would you define justice? So, uh, my, my dad is a, a, uh, minister. And so I grew up, you know, with, with him talking about, you know, fairness and, and I don't know that he used the word justice, but that was kind of the idea. And then my stepdad is a judge, um, then a lawyer. And so I just really think of justice as, as general fairness. Um, you know, I've, I've, I grew up watching, um, courtroom, you know, arraignments, things like that in my stepdad's courtroom. And I, I just thought that, you know, it, it, there was just sort of a general notion of fairness and trying to be, be nice to people. And if somebody did something wrong, fix it and make sure they know that it's wrong. But uh, it's definitely not a, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to trying to necessarily punish people, but just trying to make sure that they know what's right. That's probably a terrible
3: answer, but.
2: sounds good to me. Thanks, John.
3: Does indeed, does indeed. Thank you, John. Lester. Yes.
2: Do you have a uh, something that has happened in the news that you'd like to share with
3: our listeners? I, I absolutely do, and it's unfolding uh, even as we speak and record this podcast today. But uh, I don't think we've we've actually talked about it here. But uh, uh, as you know, with coronavirus and COVID nineteen uh, uh, spreading and sort of running wild throughout in different states and different cities, uh, you're having. Uh, Uh, different responses and in particular one of the questions is you know uh, should the government a government be able to uh, order somebody to wear a mask if they're out in public or it's conditioned upon them entering public buildings and whatnot Uh, in some places it doesn't seem to be too controversial Uh, the chief justice of the georgia supreme court has said you know if you go in a a courthouse you know wear 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 a mask Uh, but one of the things that's that's uh, happened here in georgia is that uh, Governor Kemp has said that he has the authority to order or not order a person to wear a mask uh, pursuant to uh, his emergency powers. And uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who's the mayor of Atlanta, Georgia's largest city, uh, has put in place an ordinance that requires people to wear a mask in public. Uh, And so Governor Kemp has gone to court and asked for a temporary restraining order uh, against the city of Atlanta, the city councilman and Mayor Mayor Bottoms uh, on this part of the ordinance that says you're required to wear you're required to wear a mask if you're within the in, in the city of Atlanta. Uh, I think there are two things that are very important about that. One, there's not been a resolution to it; it's still pending. Uh, there were several judges that recused for one reason or another. Uh, uh, in fact, the day that we're recording this, uh, but ultimately. Uh, I think there are two things that are are probably very interesting for our readers or for our listeners. The first thing is that, you know, it's not just individuals against corporations or individuals against one another that go to court to try to solve these kinds of disputes. And when you have something like COVID-19, where uh, there's, there's a federal response, typically, to things like this, there's a state response, there's a city response for each municipality... And so there's frequently a question over who actually has the authority to do this kind of thing. You know, we hear the president of the United States sometimes saying, well, all the schools are going to be open. You know, the president probably doesn't have the authority to say all the schools are going to be open. The school board is the one that has the authority to say that even though the, fe- the president, uh, whoever that may be, is at the top of the food chain and the school boards uh, are, are, are not at the top of the political food, food chain at least. The second thing that I found very interesting about this case is that the governor actually asked that uh, Mayor Bottoms and the council members be enjoined, that is have a court order saying, you can't even talk about coronavirus and you can't even talk about wearing a mask. Um, And that is unusual from a legal perspective, uh, if not unheard of. Uh, If you go to places like England that do not have a First Amendment, then uh, courts will frequently enjoin somebody from saying something or from providing some kind of information. Courts in the United States typically don't have that authority uh, except maybe in criminal cases during the pendency of the case, but not beyond that. Uh, It's called the doctrine of prior restraint and the US Supreme Court said in New York Times versus Sullivan that uh, the remedy is to sue people that say false things not to stop them from having that right to free speech. So it will be very interesting to see what happens. Uh, on this. I'm not I don't have a prediction about who actually has the authority. I'm not talking about whether you should wear a mask. I think you should to protect others if you go out. But I'm talking about who has the authority to impose or not impose that part of it. But it's going to be very interesting to see what happens on this free speech claim. And my bet is uh, I'd I'd put my money on the mayor on that one just because we actually have a First Amendment and, and a lot of countries don't and you'd probably get a different result if you were in some other countries.
2: I'm with you. I put my money on that issue on the on the uh, prior strain or the speaking about coronavirus with the mayor and with anyone. I mean, I think, I, I, I believe even today that the CEO of DeKalb County is gonna issue a mask requirement uh, law. Uh, Michael Thurman, we'll see if the governor sues him. Governor hasn't sued any other mayor
3: in the he state hasn't, of Georgia. Um, uh, 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 Hardy Davis and, and Augusta put one of those in effect. Uh, Uh, also, uh, there's a difference under Georgia law and today we've kind of been talking about a lot of technicalities about slip and fall and that kind of, you know, there's a huge difference between cities and counties under Georgia Uh, law and how, how they're treated. And you could possibly even end up with getting one result, you know, with the governor versus the city of Atlanta, another, another result in the governor versus the, the versus DeKalb County, if that ever came to be.
2: You, you could, and then there's an issue that, that I am wondering about because the city of Atlanta is in both DeKalb and Fulton, mm-hmm. but he brought a case in Fulton County and not in DeKalb. Now, can a Fulton County judge order something for the citizens of uh, it'll be That'll be interesting, but it also strikes me on the First Amendment question that this lawsuit was brought for the gov- for, on behalf of the governor um, by the Attorney General of the state of Georgia, or his assistant AGs, and what what went through those lawyers' minds when they added that claim to a lawsuit? I understand trying to enjoy something, but not f- speech, not freedom of speech. And uh, I think the First Amendment rights maybe. Are, are in jeopardy and may get trampled on and we're hoping the judge does the right thing on that but I, I my money would be with the mayor on that issue as well it'll be fun to watch I, I was going to watch the hearing today before the recusal and then I found out so whenever they do have a hearing I'll, I'll be watching because I think it'll be fun
3: well it's a, it's a it'll also be interesting I, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see and maybe we can talk about this later as we see how it falls out but you know if you want a temporary restraining order you have to go into court and you have to prove your case uh, before you get to a jury, or you get to a lot of other arguments. You know, you have to go prove your case. And you know, a lot of people file suits that ask for that, but then they don't ever, don't ever proceed with it. And I'm going to be interested to see if the uh, uh, if the if the governor's office really and truly wants to move forward uh, with the whole claim, and particularly the claim as it relates to uh, freedom of speech.
2: It'll be interesting.
3: So, what about you? What have you got for us today? I,
2: I wanted just to mention. I I know it's on everybody's mind and heart. Heart, but uh, the death of John Lewis, his passing. He was my congressman. Uh, I've lived in his district, the fifth district, for uh, well almost thirty years. Uh, I didn't know him personally. I had met him once, actually, in my church. He came and and gave a sermon in my church, um, and. He was a hero to me. He's a hero to my family. Um, and I, I I, regret his passing. I, I I, know it's inevitable at some point, but it's, he's the kind of man you wish could just live forever. Well, and I think
3: it- – I think he's a great reminder of, uh, I think of a hymn that was in the Baptist hymnal. um, uh, And it was actually from a poem by James Russell Lowell that says, New occasions teach new duties, and time makes ancient good uncouth. And so if you go look at what people thought about what John Lewis was doing uh, back when he was coming off the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge and getting his head beat in, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that he was an agitator. A lot of people, uh, had bad things to say about him. Uh, and he's a hero and he's somebody who's actually affected change. And, uh, he's made what people were saying was good, uh, which never was good. Uh, segregated life in America. He's, he's part of the reason it's viewed as uncouth today.
2: And, um, you know, I was talking to, um My my law clerk, Austin Weatherly, who happens to be with us today, but talking to him about the fact that Congressman Lewis was not a lawyer, but may have affected more change in the law than anyone you could think of, which I think is very important. Two things that you mentioned, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, we all know is famous march to Montgomery. I'd like to see that bridge renamed in honor of Congressman Lewis, number one. And number two, I'm hoping our state government will his body to lie in state in the state capitol i haven't heard anything about that i know we've done it for other senators and congressmen who have passed um we did it for uh, paul coverdale i remember so i'd like to see that i don't know what i haven't heard anything about if that's a possibility but i th- certainly think he deserves it
3: well and, and another another possibility too is as you know in the united states Capitol and statutory hall each state has two uh, two statues of an individual from that state, and uh, one of those uh, one of those now is is the statue of Alexander Stevens who was vice president of the Confederacy, and uh, there has been some move afoot to maybe replace that with with a statue of uh, John Lewis.
2: I would definitely support that. So that's what I that's all I have. Do you anything else?
3: Nothing else, I guess. Until until next time, we'll see you in court. See you in court.
1: Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to seeyouincourtpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Nareen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication and the Georgia Tech students who helped bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, Until our next episode, we'll see you in court.